0: Hello and welcome to Thermonuclear Takes from Physical Attraction. You will remember that these are the types of episodes where we just try and cover some stories that are in the news in a bit of a more loose and free-flowing format and generally topics that we've covered before. We like to try and give you an update on what's been going on with them recently. So it's a bonus episode if you're into that sort of thing, listen on. And we're going to move on to a few topics in the news that are going to be of interest to comment on and one of them is in the technology sector, so covering some of this softbanky, venture capital technological goings-on that have been happening lately, because there have been a few interesting ones. So those of you who listened to our series on SoftBank's Vision Fund will remember that there was this lengthy discussion of Uber, which our friend and interview victim Ed Ongueso Jr. has spent a long time studying, and he's done some great research on the company and its financials and so on. And you remember that part of our criticism of a lot of the tech companies that SoftBank is investing in is that they're not really about making any fundamental advances in technology. They're not really innovative about developing new products or technologies in a way. Uh, they're really more about circumventing regulations and trying to establish a monopoly. And lots of them have this same uh, loss-making business model up front. Uh, they plow through a lot of venture capital money and they lose a lot of money initially. And then once they've captured the market, presumably the aim to be become profitable is to jack up prices along the way. Um, But that's not how they sell themselves. They sell themselves as these glorious innovative technology companies that are going to revolutionise industry X and catapult us into some new hyper-technological future. Um, And this helps to justify why they have the high valuations that they do even when they're losing money, because they can point to other tech companies that have been able to scale very quickly um, and have lost money initially, and say, well, we're going to be much like them. So, you know, if you view Uber as a cutting-edge technology company that is going to take over all of transportation, like Amazon is taking over all of retail, then you can justify it being worth the billions and billions of dollars that's being pumped into it. If, however, you view it as more of a taxi company that has never made a profit and doesn't even own any of its own cars, then it's a different kettle of fish to think about. Obviously, Uber very much encourages you to take on the first viewpoint, regularly describing themselves as the Amazon of transportation, and hyping up the prospect of developing a lot of new technologies that are going to give them the edge in transportation, which is you know, ultimately the art of moving people and things around, so there's a lot of people in that industry already. For Uber, part of the techno hype that it relied on to inflate its valuation was to emphasise all of the work that it was doing on self-driving cars. Even then, as we discussed with Ed when we interviewed him, it's not really clear how developing these self-driving cars would actually help Uber all that much. Their whole model is not actually about owning or producing any cars themselves. They kind of offload the expense of running and maintaining a fleet of cars onto the drivers who then aren't classed as employees, but independent contractors and so on. So if self-driving cars are to be developed, and I think we'd both say they're a lot further away than people think they are at the moment then it's more likely to be profitable for an actual car company to develop them because they will be able to sell them. Um, You know, it would be easier for uh, a car company that's developing self-driving cars to launch a fleet of self-driving cars as a taxi service than it would be for Uber to do it, if that makes sense. As the Financial Times put it in their Alphaville blog back in 2015, quote, Uber has always been, at best, a low-margin business that depends heavily on being able to overstep regulation, licensing, and, most importantly, transfer maintenance, cleaning, insurance, and market risk exposure to drivers. If cars can change from personal assets that spend nearly 90% of their time idle to investments that yield revenues, who exactly would fund and manage a driverless fleet on behalf of Uber? So obviously the point here is that once you get rid of the driver, uh, there's no person who you can offload the cars onto. Um, Nevertheless, Uber pointed to the self-driving car research as evidence that it was going to be this incredibly innovative company, which is why it was interesting to note that they've now sold their entire autonomous research division and are basically dropping even the pretense of trying to develop this technology. So Ed wrote about this for Motherboard in an article entitled Uber sells off sci-fi pipe dreams, exploiting human labor as its only plan. Now, of course, I'd say go and read the whole article, but I will flag up a few points here. The first is, in essence, Uber is really abandoning most of its sort of technological dreams here. So it has this advanced technology group, uh, which has now been sold off to a self-driving startup called Aurora. And in exchange for a 26% in Aurora's business it gave them the whole advanced technologies group and also $400 million, which is interesting in itself because SoftBank's Vision Fund ploughed a billion dollars into the advanced technologies group and Toyota gave them $500 million. So people have invested a lot of money in this, uh, developing this self-driving cars through this Uber group. And it's now seems to be being kind of offloaded a little bit into an alternative business that's going to do something with the research that they've done there, um, you would think. And it also sold its Elevate division, which was supposedly working on uh, flying taxis, to another startup in a similar sort of deal. So it's interesting here because both of these deals involved uh, Uber giving away this part of their company and also investing in that part of the company in cash in exchange for a stake in the business that they sold to. Which is a little bit unusual. It's a bit like offloading part of your business, but also maintaining some some equity from the other business that's going to work with this. So depending on how you value the business that you have uh, given your technology group away to, uh, it's hard to tell whether they are sort of doing this at a loss um, or a gain or not. But you know, one could say that the the key point is clear that Uber is no longer interested in developing its own self-driving cars and is now just investing in other people who are trying to do that and the same is true of the flying taxis. So the point here is not really that Uber is suddenly less likely to develop self-driving cars and flying taxis. I think we all thought that this stuff was a long shot for them to achieve particularly given how many other people are trying to achieve it at the same time but it's that they're kind of not even pretending to try anymore and they're now left with a slimmed down core business model that is still unprofitable, and they don't really have this long-term narrative for how these magical technologies are going to come along and save the business. And I think it just goes to show, I mean, it, it, it's not entirely related, but one thing that we've been talking about a lot on on climate Twitter and in climate circles lately is just how much fossil fuel companies uh, will advertise their business as being in the renewables business, basically. So if you ever get these ads from ExxonMobil or Total or Shell or BP or whatever it is, they will almost always emphasize the uh, projects that they're doing in the renewables space. And if you were to just look at the ads, you would think that was all that they were doing. And you would think that that was their business model. And the reality is, in fact, we worked it out that the ExxonMobil, uh, their whole thing is that they're going to make biofuels from algae. Now, yeah, you can make biofuels from algae, but the point is that Exxon Mobil's project, even if it's successful that they're investing in, will produce some tens of thousands of barrels of biofuel from these algae by 2030 or 2040 or something. You know, the point of it is is that, you know, even if this thing scales up, Exxon knows that it's not really going to be a threat to its core business model and it's certainly not going to displace its core business model which is of course extracting and selling oil. And Exxon Mobil, you know, they they're also fully aware that this is not going to be a viable thing and I think that they are quite cynically sort of pushing this to give themselves this green reputation. Because when you look at the amount of money that they're spending on this, they're actually spending more on advertising uh, by some distance than they've spent on this biofuel project. So they're spending more time telling you about what a clean company they are than actually trying to be clean. And it sort of shows that, particularly for this company, there's not much of a sign that they have taken on board the idea that we are going to go through this energy transition in the next 20, 30 years. And, you know, by the end of that, if we're going to meet with the Paris Agreement in any anything like meeting with the Paris targets, um, there won't be any oil being sold and extracted. There will be hardly any. And what little there is, you know, won't be used for uh, transportation nearly so much anymore and all this sort of things. So it's hard to say that the actual business models of the fossil fuel companies is in any way compatible with the Paris Agreement. And yet, when you look at their advertising, uh, one might say their propaganda, you would think that they were in a very different business to the one that they're in. So it's always worth comparing what companies say they're doing, what they like to emphasize they're doing, and their actual spending. And there's a sort of famous study that showed that you know, if you look at the capital expenditure, the sort of money that's being spent by these big fossil fuel companies, about 1% of it goes into renewable projects in this study, and 99% on exploration and extraction of further fossil fuels, which you would think, you know, if these companies were really focused on their new renewables divisions now, um, would not be the case. It made me think there might be quite an interesting point for perhaps having some sort of regulation that for every one advert Exxon wants to put out about their Uh, biofuel project they should have to put out 99 about (laughs) their fossil fuel projects so you get a better idea of what it is the company actually does but then of course if you had standards in advertising like that it would be very difficult for uh, all sorts of different companies to advertise what they're doing so we'll probably have to park that one but anyway the point is that you look at uber and the way that they've told you that they'll develop their business and the way that they actually appear to be doing and developing their business are very very different And the sales of their self-driving arm and the sort of abandonment of that technological development arm of Uber um, says a lot about the tech industry, I think. In similar news, then, we also hear that the much-loved robotics company Boston Dynamics has also been sold again. Now, you've probably seen their videos because they often go viral, particularly in sectors of the Internet, that like science and technology. They're the ones behind that Atlas robot that can sort of walk shakily around looking like the Terminator. It'll do a backflip. It'll attack people with a giant wooden pylon and stuff. Um, They have uh, Spot the dog, the robot dog, which is this dog with an arm. The video of that I remember is it's taking dishes out of a dishwasher. And you're supposed to think, okay, it's at a state now where it can manipulate objects and be useful as a kind of household robot servant or whatever. Um, And generally, this company has kind of got a bit of a reputation where they produce these very impressive pieces of hardware, um, but they don't seem to have that much practical use aside from making these viral videos and sparking memes and often some quite serious, but also maybe quite credulous discussion about robots taking over the world every time this company develops a new product. Well, we've talked on this show before, and I've written about just how hard humanoid robotics is to get right. And also the sad reality that, to be honest, it's hard to see any sort of general purpose robots getting widespread use anytime soon when you can just build a much simpler robot that performs a niche automated application far more effectively than these complex humanoid models can. And human labor is often cheap enough that you could just hire someone to do it um, as a service without needing some sort of robot servant that needs incredibly complicated programming and uh, is expensive at this point. And so, you know, Boston Dynamics, the engineering, doubtless, is extremely impressive. And, you know, I, I know the complexities that go into this stuff. So I don't want to talk down their technology, but simply to say that as a company and as our impression of the future and the difference between our impression of the future and where it's actually going, I think they're a good example of that. Now recently they did start selling Spot the Dog models commercially for the first time as a sort of research platform and there was some evidence that SoftBank, who were their former owners, were trying to push them into commercialization by selling this first commercial product. They have a background where they were initially developed uh, out of the defence industry, which sort of developed the first of these robots, which was the precursor to Atlas, which was a thing called Petman, um, which they actually used to test uh, like fireproof and chemical proof suits um, and how they would stand up to strain with people running in them so you know that's, that sort of gives you an impression of the u.s military budget that if you want to test a fireproof suit or a, or a um, combat uh, body armor or whatever you can actually just develop a whole new humanoid robot that turns out to be one of the most advanced humanoid robots ever developed to try and test that thing i mean it, it, it's crazy but that's what they did And one of the things that they've done with these spot the dog models, you know, there's a few different robots like this out there. Um, When it comes to programming the software for robotics, it's quite interesting. There's not really a uh, a universal platform. The closest that you have is the robotics operating system, which, as I understand it, is all um, open source anyway. And so it's not being developed by an individual company um, that was associated with a company called Willow Robotics originally, but that folded and shut down. And so basically, when it comes to the actual space of these robots, you these sort of multi-purpose robots, I guess you'd say, um, some of them are humanoid and some of them aren't, um, you have these platforms that are being sold. And the idea is, what the companies are hoping you'll do, is that you'll uh, buy the robot as a sort of one-off experimentation robot for your company or for your university research project or whatever it may be and you'll develop some interesting software for it and some interesting applications for it so uh, spot the dog is an example now Um, you had similar things with the aldebaran robotics robots which were pepper and uh, toyota's human support robot too which is basically just a thing that goes around and has a little robot arm uh, and can be told to grab stuff and, uh, you know, the, the market for this stuff is incredibly niche. Um, they might sell a few hundred units at most to different research teams. And as I say, the idea is that you then go away and program it and try and come up with some interesting applications for it. And so Boston Dynamics can then say, well, we've sold these spots and we can get some nice video of spot being used for some sort of practical purpose. Uh, and I guess the hope out of that is that maybe if people find that the thing is really good at, I don't know diffusing landmines or something like that, um, it will start to, uh, its niche market will expand through the software that other people have kind of developed for it, and the applications that other people have found for it. But it just sort of shows you that these things are really incredibly uh, complicated pieces of kit that are really in search of their niche and in search of a market, and that there is this huge gap between this fancy technology and any sort of practical uh, use at scale that is going to bring us closer to the the sci-fi world that we're always advertised, uh, where these general purpose robots are running around and, and doing our bidding. Um, so the headline that we wanted to talk about then is the fact that the company Boston Dynamics has been sold again. Um, SoftBank has sold Boston Dynamics to Hyundai for a clean 1.1 billion dollars. So... You'll remember that Boston Dynamics has had this interesting history. First, it was acquired by Google when they were trying to work on some humanoid robotics project called Project Replicant. Um, That project lasted about five years and then they stopped it and they sold it to SoftBank for a few hundred million dollars where it fit in quite well with their techno-hype singularity investment portfolio. Yeah, I think in some ways for SoftBank, I think owning these loss-making robot companies really just does come back to Uh, Masayoshi Son and the sort of way he wants to portray himself right he likes um, people knowing that these innovative robot companies uh, the Aldebaran Robotics which became SoftBank Robotics after they bought it which makes these Peppers and then Boston Dynamics are kind of under this big SoftBank umbrella um, because it drives the hype in him and SoftBank as a property and the sort of value Uh, position that SoftBank can take because SoftBank can tell you, well, look, we've got all of the most advanced robotics companies in the world. Um, We're going to obviously be the people who develop humanoid robotics and take you to the sci-fi future. And it all kind of fits in with um, those of you who listen to the SoftBank series will remember that crazy hundred year PowerPoint presentation where he's talking about uh, the nexus between humans and machines But again, to return to a theme that we were talking about before, I mean, when you look at this as an actual fraction of what SoftBank is really investing its money in, um, it's very small. These two big robotics companies are you know, a few hundred million dollars here and a few hundred million dollars there, which obviously sounds like a lot to any sane person, but is uh, relatively small compared to, say, their 20 billion stakes in things like WeWork and so on. Um, And the reason being, of course, that I think even Masayoshi Son knows that these technologies are a very, very long way from being commercialized. Um, Now, they've sold this on again to Hyundai, uh, and this makes Hyundai the third big corporation to own this little robot company, which has about 300 employees uh, across the last seven years. Now, it's not clear whether SoftBank has actually made any money on this transaction uh, because they invested a lot of money into Boston Dynamics. So they have sold it for more than they bought it, but they've also invested a lot in the company in the meantime. But, you know, it it does again kind of put the lie to the idea that SoftBank's long-term strategy is to take over the world with robots. Um, Masayoshi Son said that he remains invested in the company's success, but, you know, he he remains invested in a way that involves selling 80% of the investment that he just had. So, you know, it's business speak, isn't it? One thing that I think is worth noting here is just the scale of the transaction. A billion dollars, again, sounds like an awful lot of money, but in the tech sector bubble at the moment, it's not actually all that much. It's 1% of the Vision Fund. It's a rounding error on the valuation of some of these huge uh, disruptive apps that are the sort of main thing that the tech sector is. So you go back to the SoftBank Blurry Vision series, and you remember our thesis is that tech is portraying itself as this thing that's going to take over the world. It's really just sort of a series of apps that is trying to circumvent regulations and uh, get around rules and often is not as innovative as the people behind it would like it to be. And, you know, my sort of feeling on this is that it would be great if a lot of this capital could be diverted towards uh, all of the sort of genuinely innovative projects that I know a lot of the people who are listening to this uh probably would like to see coming out of the tech sector you know it, it's not necessarily from a place of total techno pessimism that we come here but just to say you have to look and see uh how the market is distorted and how some of the stuff that is getting funding is is a waste compared to the many 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 problems that we have to solve in the real world um, and why it's a shame that you look at the hundred billion dollar softbank vision fund and None of this is invested in a lot of this early stage research and development and even late stage commercialization for the technologies that we're kind of dreaming of and hoping that will come along and solve a lot of our social problems. So, you know, this $1 billion for the Boston Dynamics, it's kind of less money than Uber alone has lost this year. In the same week that Boston Dynamics was sold for a billion dollars, the food delivery app DoorDash went public. And that was briefly worth $72 billion on the public markets in what was described as the most ridiculous IPO of 2020. Uh, An IPO being an initial public offering, which is when a company first floats on the market. So bear in mind that DoorDash is a startup that's just seven years old. Uh, It's never turned a profit. And again, there's no uh, glorious and brilliantly and unusually uh, inexplicable technology underneath this you know it's just another delivery app um and well i think initially they were hoping it would come in at 36 billion when they floated it on the stock market it ended up being 72 billion Uh, so (laughs) when you look at again the tech sector and the fraction of the money that's going into these apps and this disruption model and the fraction that's going into uh, genuinely innovative stuff on the hardware side uh, you can really see the difference there And the fact that both of these things happened in the same week just kind of underlines, again, this distinction between what we think the tech industry is and what it's actually doing. So, you know, Boston Dynamics have been developing their robots for 30 years and for all the hype around it, for all the viral videos and attention and for all of the sophisticated engineering they've got, they're worth basically a rounding error on another food delivery app that has never made a profit. The tech sector, the capital flows in the tech sector... They, come, they just love these money-losing apps like Uber, Lyft, WeWork, DoorDash, and so on, um, which promise to disrupt existing industries and become the Amazon of XYZ and so on. And when it comes to the actual companies that are solving and innovating in these hard engineering problems, albeit their robots may be of little practical use at the moment, but you know, I would say what they're doing is impressive, um, they're, they're very lukewarm and they don't really see the value proposition of that. And... It's all about the, re- the contrast between the rhetoric of the tech sector and what it's actually doing. They want to tell you that they're ushering in the singularity, when actually they're just ploughing lots of money into these apps that are trying to cannibalise existing industries and create monopolies. Part of the problem, of course, is the classic point that investors are always looking to make a profit, and preferably a very near-term profit, um, so they're more sold on the idea that DoorDash might make a profit in the short term than the idea that Boston Dynamics ever will who've been making these great robots for decades and not really found a market for them at all. And I think they realise that even finding these niche applications for the Boston Dynamics robots will take time, and that the robots themselves probably need many more years of patient development before they can do anything that's particularly useful. So SoftBank's they tried to nudge Boston Dynamics towards commercialising these products. Um, Those spot the dog robots, they were probably about $80,000 that they were being sold for, And they may have sold around 400 spot units so far, according to Bloomberg, which is perhaps just a fifth of what it costs Boston Dynamics to keep going each year. And, you know, one point I saw made when I was reading up on this was uh, Boston Dynamics argues that the spots and other robots like this can do dangerous and dirty tasks uh, which are associated with robotics. Typically, people say for robotics, what you have is the three Ds the dull, the dangerous and the dirty, which are the things that you want robots to do instead of people. Um, Quite often the dull things have already been automated uh, because it's easier if you want, say, uh, a robot that's going to spray paint a car to just develop an arm and not have an arm that's attached to a robot dog for some reason to do it, you know. Um, But actually there are plenty of uh, drones Uh, Equipped with cameras on sale that can do this type of surveillance or monitoring of, say, offshore oil rigs much cheaper and more effectively. So, the sort of use cases for these robots is kind of being cannibalized a little bit by the drones uh, that have these cameras and that are being cheaply sold and manufactured en masse. And you're limited to a sort of quite narrow set of situations where you need to be able to both see and manipulate your environment at the same time and i think none of these robots are quite ready for prime time on that as we saw for example in the cleanup after the fukushima uh, disaster which ended up becoming a bit of a graveyard for lots of robots that tried to clean up the nuclear waste uh, and ended up dying in the process so it's an interesting one and sort of tracking boston dynamics as a kind of uh, an indication of that part of the tech sector is interesting now, of course, as we said, Boston Dynamics was spun out of DARPA in the military, which explains how they were able to produce this kind of hardware in the first place. It comes back to the fact that these government projects are trying to solve a problem, in this specific case, uh, testing these uh, combat suits, and they don't need to worry about profits. Uh, they are fine as long as they can eventually hope to solve a problem. And of course, you know, the interesting thing about this as well is that I think part of the motivation for the military to develop a lot of this stuff is to say look how high tech our military is. Um, It's like a propaganda piece, right? In the same way that the space race, obviously, between the US and the Soviets going to the moon in 1969, which is kind of insane when you think about it, um, based on how far space travel has come since then. um, You know, that was mostly politically motivated as well. So again, all of these things that sort of exist as a, a taste or an idea of maybe where we could be if our priorities were a little bit different and a little bit more long term and a little bit less focused on the short term profit as symbolized by this series of apps you know that there, there are interesting uh, technological developments that we could solve and the tech sector spends a lot more time talking about them than actually doing them um hyundai for their credit you know they have talked about wanting to develop boston dynamics as this dexterous robotics company that can do things like care for the elderly which people often say will be the eventual use case for robots especially in asia but there is a huge valley of death for robotics before it can get to anything like what the tech sector would need to to do something like that and i think a lot of the people who are investing their money are reluctant to try and cross that and they see it as a loser and would rather put their money into these uh, money losing apps instead for some reason So I've said before and I've written about how I think the most likely route to any kind of profit for these robotics companies is to start by sticking to niche tasks in logistics and delivery. And that's why I think Amazon is the most likely company to eventually get some of this stuff working more effectively, uh, replacing humans in the Amazon warehouses once and for all. You obviously don't need an Atlas type humanoid robot working in these warehouses. You just need basically an arm on wheels with some sensors that can pick things up and handle a lot of different types of object and package them automatically. And that will end up being a much less complex machine that is still slightly more complicated than a stationary arm of the type that's been working on uh, you know factories for for many decades now. So Boston Dynamics, they are trying to play up to this with its new picking robot, which they call Handle, and it's definitely moving towards this area of trying to produce a practical robot that can solve uh, a challenge that exists in the world where there's quite a big market, rather than making these viral memes of robots and androids doing backflips and so on. But you know, Amazon, they have their own robotics challenge on a regular basis to try and find picking and packing robots. And there's not really any sign that Boston Dynamics' robot is better on that front so far. Indeed, you may not even need this dexterous manipulation to the same extent, as I remember seeing videos of one of the winners of this competition where they basically just use suction cups. And when you have those, you can actually pick up lots of different types of object um, without the need to have a complicated piece of software or machine learning that uh, tells an arm how it's supposed to manipulate an object so that it can, you know, pick up an egg without crushing it and uh, and all this sort of thing so unless hyundai are willing to throw billions at boston dynamics and be very patient about its technology development um, you can almost imagine it being sold again in a few years to another buyer with more good intentions and the robot apocalypse will be permanently cancelled or at least postponed Now, there are a few more stories that I wanted to talk about, and they are in the fields of economics and climate change, which we talk about quite a bit. So let's get right into it. There are a couple of very interesting, perhaps obvious, but also provocative economic studies which came out recently. And, you know, if nothing else, uh, talking about these studies is going to give you some interesting things to fight with your relatives about over Christmas dinner this year. Although I suppose one good thing is that in 2020, you'll be able to turn off Zoom or Skype and you won't actually have to deal with that awkward atmosphere afterwards when you do have the classic holiday time politics fight. So the first of these was a paper from researchers at the RAND Corporation entitled Trends in Income from 1975 to 2018. In essence, this is a paper about economic inequality in the US. And I'll quote from the abstract here. The three decades following the Second World War saw a period of economic growth that was shared across the income distribution, but inequality in taxable income has increased substantially over the last four decades. This work seeks to quantify the scale of the income gap created by rising inequality compared to a counterfactual world in which the growth was shared as it was before. We introduce a time period agnostic and income level agnostic measure of inequality that relates income growth to economic growth. This new metric can be applied over long stretches of time, applied to subgroups of interest, and easily calculated. We document the cumulative effect of four decades where income grew below GDP, and we estimate that the aggregate income for a population below the 90th percentile over this time period would have been $2.5 trillion higher in 2018 had income growth since 1975 remained as equitable as it was in the first two decades after World War II. From 1975 to 2018, the difference between the aggregate taxable income for those below the 90th percentile and the equitable growth counterfactual totals $47 trillion, etc. So effectively what they're saying here is that starting around 1975, GDP growth became decoupled from wages for the bottom 90%. The economy continued to grow by the vague metric of GDP, especially in the US here, which we're talking about, while wages for that bottom 90% stagnated. If the bottom 90% had kept up with GDP growth, they would have taken home together an extra 2.5 trillion dollars in 2018, and the total amount of wealth that has effectively gone to the top 10% rather than staying distributed amongst the bottom 90% over the last 43 years uh, because of this change where the economy uh, growth became decoupled with wages, then that amounts to around 47 trillion dollars. So I think it's interesting. And another thing to point out, of course, is that it's not like 1975 was totally egalitarian either. Um, Back then you had 1% of people earning 9% of income, leaving the bottom 90% with 67% of the earnings. But now in 2018, the top 1% gets 22% of the income and the bottom 90% gets 50% of the income. So the share of the total taxable income, these uh, wages and so on, is shrinking for the bottom 90% and it is increasing for the top 1%. And in essence, it's actually interesting that mathematically, almost exactly what has been, uh, what is no longer going to the bottom 90% is now going to the top 1%. Um, The reason I think that studies like this are important is because when people defend inequality in our societies, they don't ever do so in specific terms. You hear a lot of rhetoric like, of course you need some level of inequality if everyone got the same amount of money there would be no incentive for innovation there would be no reward for hard work and success and so on I think there's merit to that argument that you can't obviously give everyone the same salary for doing different jobs and that you do want there to be incentives for people to come up with new ideas and take risks in investing and you know, get themselves educations and skills that will allow them to command higher salaries and all that sort of thing. Of course, that's very true. And the result of that will be some level of inequality within a society. But the point I would make then is, okay, some inequality might be inevitable, but how do you justify this level of inequality? Simply taking us back to the levels of inequality that the US had in the 1970s, which was not exactly a communist paradise, would entail trillions of extra dollars going to the bottom 90%. The reality is that the way things are at the moment in the highly financialized society that we live in, even if you want to believe that it's the case, hard work, talent, and being innovative, all of these things that, you know, we're all interested in encouraging and promoting, and these things aren't being rewarded as much as they used to be. What is instead being rewarded is having a massive stack of money already, And we see this in the fact that the wages and income that you get from your job, your work, is increasingly shrunk and shrunk and shrunk compared to the amount of income that you can get simply from having money to begin with. And so the case for redistribution then, it's not exactly a case of people asking for handouts in exchange for doing nothing. It's a case of restructuring society so that it actually rewards people who work for a living more than it does at the moment. So people might think, well, what happened in 1975? Um, it, it's an interesting question. And I think the other thing that is, is also interesting to talk about is, OK, <laughs> what was different after the war that actually gave rise to this ability for um, growth of the economy and wages to work together? And it was this sort of Keynesian consensus of how you would deal with the economy. Um, it was the New Deal. And then this was kind of blown apart in the mid-1970s. And so what happened then was a a number of things. The oil crises, of course, set off a lot of things and and caused uh, a recession and a change in the politics that had prevailed prior to the 1970s. But also there was the beginning of the unravelling of the consensus in economics that had existed in the post-war period. Kurt Anderson's book, Evil Geniuses, which I'm hoping we might do as a book review eventually, does a good job of explaining how these ideologies managed to take hold, especially in the US and the UK in the Anglosphere. And it kind of started with the failed campaign of Barry Goldwater and eventually reached its zenith a few decades later, beginning in the 1980s. And this has been the start of uh, policies and things that have encouraged economic growth that has essentially not taken the bottom 90% with it anywhere near as much as it did prior to these ideologies taking over. Now much of these policies that were pursued, which have accelerated this rising inequality trend, were justified by a sort of a misunderstanding of Economics 101, uh, what the author James Quack has called economism, a sort of uh, religious belief in the power of free markets to resolve everyone's problems and allocate resources with total efficiency and fairness and all this sort of thing, and the necessity of cutting regulations and taxes as the primary means of encouraging growth rather than investing public money in uh, projects. And so the other report that I wanted to talk about was that was in the news lately actually took aim at one of the cornerstones of this kind of economism. And this is the idea of trickle-down economics. So the classic statement of trickle-down economics is simple. If you want the economy to grow, cut taxes on the rich. They will then invest in productive capacity for businesses and employ people lower down the chain and the wealth that you give them will trickle down to the poorest as the economy grows and helps everyone. This is obviously a highly contentious point of view even though it's trotted out all the time. I think what we really see, if you want to be charitable, is that this might have some marginal effect in situations where the tax rate on the rich was much higher than it is today. So maybe imagine a world that had done the Huey Long programme and capped people's personal fortunes at a million dollars taxing the rest away well in that case you could argue that it would distort a lot of what was going on and it would maybe stop people from accumulating many millions of dollars and that then they you know might not start businesses or buy businesses that were worth many millions of dollars and that perhaps that would uh, distort the businesses that could be created in the economy or something like that you could you could make an argument there if you were putting a blunt cap on the amount of money that people would have, or if the tax rate was so high that there was a limit to the fortunes that could be accumulated. On the other hand, of course, you could argue that it would lead people, knowing that the wealth they would get above $1 million would be taxed away, to instead invest in businesses and invest in you know, activities that would ensure that they wouldn't be in any way required to hoard that wealth, if you see what I mean. Um, I mean, it's not really a particularly great counterfactual because there weren't too many details about how the Share Our Wealth programme would actually have worked. But I think the point to realise is that the economy is a system that runs into all sorts of different constraints. It's hard to say that the reason that the economy is struggling at the moment is because rich people don't have enough money Not when inequality has been steadily marching upwards for the last 40 years in the way that the RAND study describes. And not when we see during the pandemic the fortunes of billionaires continuing to increase while millions are out of work. Because obviously a strong economy also needs plenty of people on decent wages who can actually afford to buy stuff that's being produced. And the other thing of course is that you can have these theories but you have to look at the net results of policies that work in this way, right? We've seen through policies like quantitative easing and so on that when you extend a lot of easy money towards companies and executives they're more likely to invest it in these bubbles or inflate their own share prices through stock buybacks Um, and that you see inflation in things like equities and assets but that what you don't see is what was argued we would see which is lots of businesses being started that are employing people and raising wages and that any of this stuff is actually trickling down um, so this sort of concept that you give people at the top a lot of money and that they will create businesses. Um, the problem with it is that at the same time this was done as a policy, we also gave businesses a social license to be concerned with nothing aside from maximizing their own profit. You know Milton Friedman, who was a very influential economist for many of these people, wrote a famous essay in this, which is called Greed is Good, and it talks about how Companies' only priority should be to maximize the value for their shareholders. And so at the same time we've said we're going to pour in loads of money at the top and it will funnel down to the bottom, Uh, we've also said to businesses that they have no obligation to spend that money on employing people um, or paying higher wages, and it has led to a very leaky funnel. In, in such an environment, you can hardly expect these businesses to employ people where machines could do the job, or pay people anything more than the bare minimum for their efforts, or indeed refrain from outsourcing work to wherever they'll be able to do it the cheapest, because you've told them that they have no social problem with doing that. It, <laughs> it reminds me of one of my favourite stories, which came from the, the late anthropologist David Graeber, who uh, tells this anecdote of a, a guy who outsourced his own job he was a software developer of some kind and he had essentially uh, figured out a way to outsource his own job by sending it to people uh, on the internet to do his work for him. Um, And, you know, he paid them a fraction of the cost because they were programmers based in India and he was in the US or Canada or something. And uh, they gave him the code. He would check up the code and work maybe an hour a day answering the emails that he had to and uh, giving them the code. And, you know, they were perfectly happy with his performance they had no issues with the software that he was developing everything worked well he was only discovered because it was found that he had been uh, using a lot of the company's bandwidth and it turns out he was just downloading movies and watching them all day at his desk and uh, he was promptly fired uh, from his job for that and the sort of the interesting thing to reflect on of course is that this guy doing that was under a contract that said you can't outsource your own job. Um, and yet, of course, if his boss or executive had done the same thing with the same results, they probably would have got a pay rise rather than being fired. So again, it just goes to show you when you don't have this social license and these social norms in place, uh, you can't expect these economic policies that work in a model to work. And then, of course, you also need to see what happens in the real world. Uh, you, know, you have to give an example and give some evidence for a case where cutting taxes on wealthy people has caused them to pay higher wages to people at the bottom and you know we've we've seen this happen across many countries for 30 years and we've not seen the effect that it was claimed it would have what we see also of course is not trickle down but trickle out into offshore accounts tax havens and so on you know when we see these Panama papers type scandals as we covered a few, episodes back uh, of our new show, looking at the consequences of this massive tax evasion and money laundering in British institutions, you're kind of seeing the consequences of people with far more wealth than they know what to do with, trying to keep it safe from any possibility that it can ever be clawed back. And that's what gives you the rise of these tax havens and a great deal of financial services aimed at the wealthy more generally. So trickle-down economics has been savage for many years, but this new research paper from the LSE does so with empirical data too, it's called The Economic Consequences of Major Tax Cuts for the Rich. And in the paper, the researchers essentially analysed data from 18 OECD countries to try and work out the effect that these reforms have had. And they basically find that the effect is pretty simple. Um, if you cut taxes on the rich, it increases the share of income that the rich have, um, and the effect on economic growth as a whole is statistically indistinguishable from zero. So, yeah... Incomes for the wealthy increase, and the wealth doesn't really seem to trickle down. Um, Instead, they keep more of the pie, and the pie doesn't seem to grow significantly as a result. Now, of course, it's always going to grow to some extent, um, as you would imagine from uh, MMT-type arguments, because if you cut taxes on anyone, that's always some wealth that is not being destroyed and is therefore being grown. And uh, if the economy needs additional stimulus of some kind, that will help a little bit. But then you have to think about the people who have the propensity to spend the money that they get as a form of economic stimulus. And the people who spend the money that they get are the poorest, so it would make more sense to give them benefits than it would to give the rich people benefits. If if your interest is in stimulating the economy or putting more money into the economy for whatever reason, if, you, if your economics tells you that that is the best thing to do. So I don't think many of this will come as a surprise to anyone, but it's nice to have these years of empirical data to back it up enough voodoo economics here, you know, let's let's recognise what's happening with these investment and asset bubbles being inflated, and let's try and pursue solutions that might actually directly help in employing people and promoting businesses that are doing innovative things and paying people decent wages, and preferably things that will solve some of the most pressing issues in the world at the same time, because there are plenty of things that will do that, and that could be doing that, and that we need to do that over the next 30 years. Speaking of which, of course, there have been many stories about climate change recently. I don't even know where to begin, really. Um, But there are a few individual papers that came out that I think are interesting to cover. And then depending on how things go in the next few weeks, I might try and do a uh, more broad review of the year uh, 2020, the year in climate, because it's been a very interesting year for climate change. So first up on the climate change stories then, towards the end of the year is when we calculate what has happened to emissions that year, with the age-old reminder that climate change is a cumulative problem. Every year we add more CO2 to the atmosphere, and the climate damages that result get worse, and so does the risks from kicking the climate further from the happy Holocene equilibrium our species and many other species on the Earth grew up in. These risks get worse and the damages get worse with each additional addition of CO2, And every year we add to it this year is of course a little different to previous years on account of you know (laughs) the whole global pandemic and massive economic recession thing hate to bring it up again but anyway the upshot is that those lockdowns and shutdowns are expected to cause co2 emissions for 2020 to fall by seven percent to put that in context emissions in 2020 from fossil fuels will be around 34 billion tons of co2 falling by around 2.4 billion tonnes compared to 2019. Now this is the largest absolute drop in emissions ever, and the largest relative fall since the Second World War. At the peak of Northern Hemisphere lockdown measures, emissions fell by around 17% in mid-April day-to-day. This is also the first year that emissions have fallen since 2009, when the global financial crisis caused a drop of around 1.2% on the previous year. Although actually, emissions per person have been pretty flat during most of the last decade. So what does this and what doesn't this tell us? One clear point is that there's not really much of a silver lining for climate change from the shutdowns directly. A 7% fall means that effectively the entire shutdown brought us about a month of time to reduce emissions. Obviously a huge global pandemic and lockdown is not the ideal way to reduce emissions, but very few people were saying that it was. The way to reduce emissions is to stop burning fossil fuels, and preferably to replace them with more efficient and clean sources of power if we continue to like all of the things that they do for us now. With that said, though, this does give you an idea of the scale of the challenge when we talk about halving global emissions in the next decade and getting them to net zero by 2050, which is what we really need to do to have a shot at the Paris Agreement. Halving global emissions in the next decade would require a global fall of 7% every single year. Now, I'm willing to bet that reducing emissions by 7% a year by shutting down fossil fuel power plants, massively building out alternative sources of energy like renewables, embracing radical energy efficiency overhauls, and switching to electric as much as possible as soon as we can, that's going to be a lot less disruptive, and it's going to have a lot more economic co-benefits, than trying to do it by forcing everyone to stay at home. In fact, it's precisely the kind of kickstart stimulus that the global economy would need to embrace in 2021 to try and keen our way out of the depression that threatens to set in. And of course, we need to say again and again and again and again that this will produce many jobs performing all of these tasks that we need to do to decarbonise and get out of fossil fuels. Many more jobs than will be lost by the destruction of the fossil fuel industry. But the risk comes with a rebound if the economic stimulus is not green in nature. And unfortunately there's some evidence that we may already be seeing this. China's emissions, driven by a surge in steel production in the latter half of the year to make up for lost time, were actually higher in the last three months of 2020 than they were in the last three months of 2019. So China has pledged to get to net zero by 2060 and peak its emissions in the next decade, but for now they're still growing and this is the problem. We need to see a commitment to a green recovery across the world, to avoid lurching from this one crisis into another one. Speaking of the world, here's an interesting little factoid in the middle of this. Did you know there are more solar panels by capacity deployed in Britain than in the whole continent of Africa? Isn't it completely insane when so much potential obviously exists for solar in Africa and so many people need that power, I and mean, when a great deal of what is going to happen to emissions over the 21st century depends on how the next few billion people to get electricity and power are actually doing to obtain that power? that there's less solar power across the whole continent than there is in Britain, which is not exactly famous for being a a sunny place, although sunlit uplands have been discussed at times. It seems to me like there would be yet another great opportunity here to, you know, advance humanity a bit by actually investing in ensuring that people in countries who are taking a very hard economic hit from the global recession uh, in the so-called global south can build infrastructure that never existed before uh, for the first time, providing people with this electricity in in a clean and safe way. You know That that would be a wonderful thing to see, but you don't see much impetus towards it right now. So another interesting climate story that I wanted to talk about is is a little bit more worrying. Um, It is a paper that came out recently, and it was about global land feedbacks and the carbon cycle. This was published in Science on the 11th of December, and it's titled recent global decline of CO2 fertilization effects on vegetation photosynthesis. So let me explain this pretty quickly. As you'll often hear from people who may or may not work for the oil industry, CO2 is plant food. And that that is true. Plants take in carbon dioxide, they use the sun's energy to break up those molecules, they emit oxygen, which we like to breathe, and then they fix that carbon into sugars and plant stems and so on. All of the various building blocks of plants and in general carbon-based life. There is a natural cycle of carbon then, absorbed by plants from the atmosphere, emitted when they die and decompose, and some of that carbon ends up in you and me too. In fact we tried to work this out and we think that for most people around a third of the carbon atoms that are in you may have at one point been part of fossil fuels that were burned. Which is an interesting concept isn't it to think that this massive perturbation of the earth system that we're applying to the world around us by emitting all of these fossil fuels has left its mark in each of us. Um, and that a lot of the carbon molecules that are in you may not have been there um, or may have been different molecules were it not for the fact that uh, historically we had dug up and burned fossil fuels. So far so good, but when you add humans into this mix we are perturbing this natural cycle of carbon. We're digging up these long buried dead plants and animals and we're burning them so that we can spin turbines that spin magnets in cores of wire to persuade electrons to move through wires to persuade other electrons to move through other wires and vibrate little pieces of metal and plastic to make noises and sound waves, which your brain then interprets as a British guy doing a long podcast about the news. Now the net effect of our actions show up in a very complicated system of climate and carbon. Only about half of the CO2 that we emit stays in the atmosphere and increases the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, contributing to the greenhouse effect and global warming. Some of the other half is absorbed by plants, resulting in global greening, and some of the other half goes into the ocean and is dissolved, or sinks down to the bottom of the sea as dead plankton and such. The global greening effect is real. Plants that were once limited in growing by the lack of CO2 have been able to consume more CO2, and the result is that the Earth is literally getting greener. More CO2, more photosynthesis, and more plant growth. We've seen in satellite imagery that anywhere from a quarter to a half of the Earth's surface has got substantially greener as a result of the extra CO2 in the atmosphere. Because plants are growing faster, they have historically been able to keep up to some extent with the increasing emissions from humans. So this has actually been a negative feedback on global warming so far. As we emit CO2, plants grow faster and they can take in more CO2. So this has actually slowed down the rate of warming, the fact that you have this land sink of CO2 that is taking up some of the extra CO2 that humans are emitting into the system. Unfortunately, this negative feedback appears to be starting to fade in effectiveness. So this paper that was published in Science is based on observations and satellite data that stretch back around 30 years. And it essentially shows that over time, the CO2 fertilization effect on plants appears to be declining. The reason why is explained in the paper, and it's actually pretty obvious. CO2 is not the only thing that plants need to grow. They also need soil moisture and nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. What is happening is that the plants that were limited in their growth due to a lack of CO2 have basically grown already, and they're running into other limits to their growth, which is due to these soil nutrients and this soil moisture. There comes a point when adding more CO2 simply doesn't promote the plant growth anymore. You've kind of saturated the effect that you can get. The problem is that the carbon cycle models that we use to try and predict how emissions will impact the climate in the future have underestimated this effect so far, and it seems to be happening more quickly than anticipated. So to make sure the models are right, we will probably need to adjust them a bit. So the point of this is to say that If this is robust and holds up, we might expect that less of the CO2 we emit will be mopped up by extra growth in plants in the future. This means that more of it will stay in the atmosphere and promote further global warming. Obviously in the worst possible case, if all of the CO2 we emitted today ended up in the atmosphere, we'd end up with CO2 concentrations rising twice as fast as they were at the moment. Now that's obviously not going to happen because lots of it goes into the oceans and the land sink isn't going to suddenly drop to zero. But the point is that the efficacy of the land sink is perhaps decreasing over time and that in the future it may be that there'll be slightly more warming than was anticipated before for the same level of CO2 because more of it will stay in the atmosphere. So I think the whole thing here is really just a reminder that alongside perturbing the climate and ecosystems, we're also kicking the carbon cycle and there's a lot of uncertainty about the effects of what we're doing. The prospect that a negative feedback loop might be weakening over time while positive ones increase is not good, to say the least. And without risking sounding like a stuck record here, it might be a good time to stop running this massive natural experiment on our shared planet by changing its atmospheric composition and maybe do the other thing instead. There were so many more climate change stories that came out recently, including the recent Climate Ambition Summit, several reports on how to get to net zero across the UK and the US and other countries, and the Climate Change Committee here in the UK produced its big report on how we need to act to meet our next carbon budget, which is it's going to be interesting for this this really important question now of what do we need to do over the next 10 years, what do we need to do over the next five years to actually get us on track for the Paris Agreement? Because we've had all of these long-term goals, and the long-term goals are great, but the, the, the reality of it is that if we don't do a lot in the next 10 years, the long-term goals will be out of reach. And of course, all of this in the background of the fact that it was the five-year anniversary of the Paris Agreement being signed in December 2015. So I hope to talk about all of that in an episode that will summarise climate for 2020. We'll have to see whether I get around to that. But I think that's probably quite enough news for you guys today. Um, but I don't know whether this episode for climate change in 2020 will materialise. There's a chance that it won't. Um, If it is, you'll see it in your feeds. But either way, next year we'll be back. And don't worry, there's plenty to come. Much, much more in the Climate 201 series, the materialisation of the Mystery Physics series I've been talking about, several interviews that are already being edited, and one very exciting mystery interview that will hopefully, hopefully be ready for the new year. This year has been awful for a lot of people, and I know that a lot of what is going on is still ongoing for many of us. Nevertheless, I do hope that you all manage to get some well-earned rest and relaxation, and generally manage to find some way of enjoying yourselves over the next few weeks. And I want to say thank you so, so much to everyone who has donated to help support the show, everyone who has sent a kind email with feedback or comments over over the last year since I came back in March, And everyone who has told friends and acquaintances to listen, I do keep going on about it, but this show is my passion project and the fact that I get to share it with some of you out there, uh, knowing that you're listening and hopefully enjoying or learning something new or starting these conversations is is a really great thing. And uh, I appreciate your indulgence in coming with me on this journey and helping in the ways that you can and do. So thank you for that pending anything else of course you can get in touch with us via the website at physicalpodcast.com there you'll find all of the information about social media patreon paypal and so on please do take care of yourselves and pending whatever else happens i will see you next year